Welcome to IB Voices. My name is Sky, and I'm seeking out unique stories about IB alumni from all over the world. Today, my colleague Phil and I sit down to speak with Kimberly Chu, a graduate of the Universal American School in Dubai, now studying at the University of California, Davis. We speak with Kimberly about culture, identity, and life as a first-generation international student. Kim, thank you so much for joining us today on IB Voices. We're really excited to talk to you and hear more about your experience as a college student and an IB student. I'm here with Phil Evans, who works on our development team. He's going to be co-hosting the episode with us. And we are um, interested in talking to you about a range of topics. But to kick us off, you're now at UC Davis. So tell us a little bit about your life at university and what you're studying. Yeah, I'm a current junior, a junior student undergraduate student, dull majoring in international relations and psychology. I'm currently working at the International Center. I'm coordinating a global ambassador mentorship program, which helps international students transition to UC Davis and American life as well. And at the same time, I work in a couple of research labs that study social issues such as food insecurity. And I used to be part of the rowing team and part of the psychology lab. My hobbies include rock climbing, hiking, and, you know, having intellectual talks at coffee shops. Kimberly, I just, I'm really interested in the blog that you wrote for the IB uh, at the beginning of this year. And in the blog, you were quite resourceful as an international student, and you've had lots of international experiences. Where did you spend most of your time growing up? Yeah, so to give some context for um, our listeners, I'm a original Malaysian but um, I never grew up in Malaysia and I lived in New Zealand five years of my life. And then I lived in Dubai for a routine of 15 years in my life. And then I moved to the United States for um, my undergraduate college experience. In the United States, your yeah. first educational experience was uh, university then at UC Davis? Yeah, it was. Awesome. It still. As an Australian expat in the United States, I've begun to feel a sense of home here but I feel my ties to Australia. So how would you best define home if you've lived in various um, countries that you have your Malaysian origins? I understand both of your parents are Malaysian and probably spent much of their lives in Malaysia, but you were in New Zealand and Dubai. What does home mean to you? Yeah, I think home isn't really just a physical realm or like a physical place. I think it's also like the strong sense of community and appreciating the different cultural values that you have in your social environment. And at the same time, for me, home, it composes mostly like, you know, memories, beliefs, values that I take in from different cultures. And it's kind of like a sense of community and identity that I build upon from friends, family, and different cultural experiences growing up. You know, growing in different places, I realized that I've always felt like a cultural utter, you know, I can, mm-hmm. I feel like I couldn't really fit into one place. I struggled a lot with that connotation in school because, you know, for me, considering myself an expat or am I an immigrant? ties in. I feel like when I hear the word expat, it sounds like there's a very westernized connotation. And for me, I kind of struggled with that label because of economic mobility and my first generation status, along with, you know, values that I grew up with, like such as emphasizing hard work ethic and being aware of systematic discrimination. Wow. And I I guess that a lot of that came from your formative years in education in Mm -hmm. Dubai. I understand that you're at the Universal American School. Mm -hmm. And some of the stories I've heard from um, 
students that have attended expat schools or schools that are anchored in either in a British or American system is that you can tend to sit within a particular community, um, even though you're in a host country. You spent 15 years in Dubai. How would you um, talk about your experience and your learning journey, I guess, in the shaping of these beliefs that you've just talked about while you were at the uh, Universal American School in Dubai? Yeah, initially my parents, I think they wanted me to experience some sort of new challenging educational system that would improve my cross-cultural humility and um, improve my intellectual exploration issues. And I think the IB system is perfect for that. You know, my parents saw it as a good fit for me because, you know, they wanted me to ask as many questions. They wanted me to improve my values, like open-mindedness, being a global citizen, and you know, dealing with people from different cultures and backgrounds. So I guess, you know, that sort of educational system would not only improve my knowledge, but also would help me address and reflect on identity and social issues. There were two identity questions we wanted to kind of dive into mm -hmm. early that related to your time in, in mm -hmm. high school in particular. Mm -hmm. um, one was about this concept of being a TCK, a third culture kid. I've met a lot of alumni who have told me they identify as a TCK. Mm -hmm. So I think the question is, is that something you identify with or do you think that term is appropriate in your case? I think it's appropriate for my case. I embrace my label and identity as a TCK mm. because for me, being a TCK, it doesn't always mean that you have one culture that you identify strongly with. You're still influenced by the people around you and by the places that you have lived in. So I acknowledge that for me, identity is very multifaceted and it takes yeah. in the shape of different experiences and social environments. That's a really great answer. The other label we were going to talk about, because we're talking about identity and label and how you define mm -hmm. yourself in some ways, and we're going to dive mm -hmm. into that really deeply in a minute, but mm -hmm. it was about being a first-generation student. You know, I was curious, you wrote about this in a blog post. What did being a first-generation student mean to you as a high school student in particular? Um, we'd yeah. love to hear more about that. Yeah, I actually struggled with that label because there was a social stigma in my high school. I think it was more like the absence of acknowledgement that was another issue within that educational setting, because I've never really directly heard of any teachers or students talking about it. Mm -hmm. You know, education was seen as a privilege. A lot of people assume that, you know, if you had the money, you could go to community college or like some form of higher education, like a four-year undergraduate college. But, you know, I felt kind of isolated because I was one of the few people that would openly talk mm -hmm. about the fact that both my, my parents did not have the opportunity to go to higher education. Did you get a lot of support from your teachers and peers in that regard? I mean, you said you felt a little isolated, but I guess what tactics did you deploy to kind of learn the things that you felt you didn't know that other people kind of took for granted? Yeah, I think on a wider structural level, um, there wasn't much formal support. You know, like mm -hmm. there was barely any acknowledgement during that time and there was a lack of like mentorship programs and so on. But I think on an individual level, yeah. I had support from my teachers that I was, I, were I was close to. Um, I was mostly close to my history and English IB mm -hmm. teachers because they would encourage me to read different books, to listen to different podcasts, and they would encourage and reflect on the IB as not only a curriculum, or like not just boring books in your school and testing all the time, but as a framework to help you address social issues and problems mm -hmm. that you want to solve the older you get. That's fantastic. Tell us a little bit about the transition. So moving from the high school to the college world, how did you manage that as a first-gen student? I know you're involved really heavily with a lot of the resources that new students are coming in with. When you first got there, how did you find out about things that were available for first-generation students and, and 
what kind of things were most helpful for you? When I was a first year, maybe almost two years ago, I initially participated in some, you know, local undergraduate clubs, you know, like rock climbing and rowing and also like a bunch of sports and also outdoor um, hiking stuff. But at the same time, I felt like something was missing. Initially, I was struggling because I didn't have access to some of the resources because, you know, I'm not a domestic American citizen. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, what I did was that I started reaching out to the different centers on campus. You know, they would have the cross-cultural center, they would have the international center. Mm -hmm. And these centers at college would have spaces where, you know, you could get to meet members of your communities that you're interested in. You know, I would start studying, I would start meeting people there. And then as I started studying and meeting with more people, people were like, hey, you should apply for this job. And then to word of mouth, I started, you know, going to workshops and Mm. um, club meetings and so on. Cool, that's fantastic. I think that's great advice for other students. I mean, you're in this really, I don't even want to call it unique category of being both international first generation. I'm, I'm sure there are others that have faced these challenges. So I think that's great advice though for both ends of the spectrum, whether you're domestic or international. Mm-hmm. So now you're also helping with other first generation students. So, I, I mean, tell us a little bit about that. What, what are some of the ways that you feel that you can have an impact because you're taking sort of that background of not having the resources that you hope that you could have had. You've had a really solid chance to reflect on that and then you know I love that you said when you first came into school you got into all of your interest areas like your hiking and rowing and things and rock climbing and things like that and then you realize with something missing that there were aspects of the community Mm -hmm. that the and resources that this university did provide and now you're helping can you tell us about that impact yeah I currently now work at two places. I'm still doing the mentorship program and assisting international students with social, professional, and cultural support to coordinating social events and assisting and providing feedback for mentorship curriculum um, stuff. But at the same time, I'm also in a peer advising position where I've been a resource for first generation students. I have been conducting interviews, form of Q&A sessions. Yeah, I've been involved in peer advising for psychology, concepts, science, philosophy and science and technology studies. So I do provide advice with a team of advisors for around 800 to 2000 students. And we provide academic and professional advice on those majors and classes that take. We have informal talks and we, um, I've been conducting interviews with other first gen peers on how to address higher education. You're kind of going off, off topic, off the script. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Does your research on campus, your degree in psychology and cognitive studies, does that play a role in, in some of the way that you look at the work that you're doing? Have you, have you kind of intermixed those two topics together on a personal level? Yeah, since I'm still um, double majoring in psychology and international relations, mm-hmm. I've been taking classes in anthropology and sociology. And okay. a lot of those classes look at how we think, how we reflect, how we see the world through different cultural lenses, uh, and also like in that relative aspect to like how we address social issues such as prejudice, discrimination, food insecurity, and colonialism. It does tie into my worldviews and it Mm -hmm. has improved a lot of my learning and dealing with people from different cultural beliefs and backgrounds while acknowledging, you know, my own labels like being a Christian student. Kimberly, you sound like you've got a really innate capacity to be able to bring all of these different learning experiences together Mm -hmm. from your real life, from your early schooling and your being 
intentional about what you're studying in college, what you're involving yourself in, and you're also giving yourself a break with all the things that you enjoy. Um, I particularly am really pleased to hear that a school like UC Davis is doing social events to bring that community together. You said that was very important earlier in this podcast, um, as well as that one-to-one peer advising and you know, the public events where you get to speak on topics and things like that. Mm. It seems to me that this also kind of ties in a lot to the things that you studied in your IB experience, mm. especially in theory of knowledge, uh, which is a central component, of course, that, you know, where students are studying the nature of knowledge, how do we know what we know, and sort of really it's a deep reflection, which you said mm. was really part of the essence of learning. Sometimes this course feels a little bit ambiguous, but it sounds like it's coming alive in various ways in your current mm. experience. What would you say about the generalization that it's a bit ambiguous? And what's your experience of theory of knowledge playing its role later on in life? Yeah, I think, you know, based on my school experiences and like how I've reflected on using the TOK framework, I think some students may find it uncomfortable because they see it as ambiguous in the sense that there is no one right answer. And I think I like the TOK framework because it does provide a holistic understanding of how we see the world and encourages us to see and be aware and reflect on the different ways of knowing, using your emotions, using anthropology and the social sciences, and using information from the natural and quantitative sciences Mm -hmm. as well. And it's a good sort of abstract framework in the sense that it helps you analyze the different abstract viewpoints and it helps you build logical arguments. You know, I tell students that a STEM major might feel uncomfortable in the liberal arts because they're not used to writing so much. Or like a liberal arts student might struggle with understanding the different natural sciences because maybe they never had exposure to like equations and STEM topics. But at the same time, I think the TOK framework has helped me a lot with establishing my own worldview over time Mm -hmm. and now without relying too much on IB jargon and more like in an abstract metaphysical sense you know building reflecting and learning on your own viewpoint and worldview through your different life experiences and beliefs. So it sounds like TOK kind of puts you on a trajectory to continue to do that even if it didn't all make sense at the time there were things Mm -hmm. you gravitate to and then it sort of gets you reflecting and thinking about the world in, in a variety of different ways. And I think it's interesting that you said it was sort of shaping of your own worldview. Some mm-hmm. people talk about a moment of aha or an epiphany kind of moment or an existential mm-hmm. moment in life. I wonder whether or not you could pinpoint one key moment where you felt like this is definitely going to direct me in a new direction. I feel like this is shaping me in a certain way. Can you think of one learning experience where it shaped your worldview and tell us about that? Yeah, um, I think there is two key moments that I realized. It was when I was in touch with several graduate student mentors as part of a research program on campus at UC Davis. And they were trying to stereotypes like, oh, lab research is only for STEM majors and like research is research. You can't really apply that in real life. I think building support and getting that support from like both of my graduate student mentors in anthropology and sociology have helped me, you know, realize labels like what a first gen is, what a true culture kid is. They helped me introduce those sort of jargons and labels and how to navigate college life. You know, I, I think this is why I should think deeply and this is how I can address social issues. I think um, getting support from, from um, those graduate student mentors has helped me a lot in shaping my worldviews and also navigating college right now. 
So I hear two things there. I hear that you've developed a vocabulary that you can use to start investigating, understanding, and then supporting and helping other people. Do you think that it's possible that this could become a stereotype in a sense? I've been realizing that there has been a lot of misconceptions and stereotypes revolving around both labels. For me, I think that's why we need to focus more on bridging differences and different types of predefined groups as you reflect on the intersectionality of both identities that I carry. And I realized that, you know, there's stereotypes and misconceptions, like if you're a true culture kid, you must be rich enough to travel country, or like you've always had enough money. And I would say, no, that's not true. My parents are immigrants and they moved from the working to middle class and they have better economic mobility now. And for me, it's been a learning experience because I've realized that I had a range of different experiences where it'd be social economic wise, social wise, cultural wise. And I think, yeah, it's a difficult question to answer because there are still stereotypes in the academic world and also like in the real world about how people perceive themselves and how like some people would invalidate true culture kids because they don't understand that we belong to more than one culture. And at the same time, yeah, I struggled with acknowledging being first gen and true culture kid because of issues like economic mobility and you know not having access to advice from my parents because they were unable to yeah. um, give me advice in college. So I think it, it's a genuine challenge with IB programs that are, are considered very high level, very rigorous, mm-hmm. you know, that some students think, oh, this, this isn't for me. Um, mm-hmm. I, I guess kind of what we're leading into, how, how did your identity play a role in the way that you learn and how do you think it plays a role in the way that other students could learn, whether that's related to their background or their socioeconomic status? Mm-hmm. I think identity in the school environment, especially like in a very rigorous, highly abstract or sort of thinking global educational system like the IB, I think the IB provides a very global identity in which you go beyond your nationality and you challenge yourself to holistic understanding of different fields and subjects. I think it does a good job of acknowledging that there are multiple viewpoints and multiple ways of interactions with both areas of academic knowledge and also dealing mm-hmm. with people from beyond your own culture or one's perceived social environment. And I think that identity ties in when you know, you're trying to build your own worldview to interacting with people, social environments, your hobbies, and what you want to do in life as well. Do you have any like tools or strategies for students? I mean, we're thinking of students who might find themselves stuck between different identities or trying to find an identity. What kind of tools would you offer them, particularly at the high school level, to kind of help them navigate that really, it's really yeah. complex topic? Yeah. I, I realize that mentorship models have helped me a lot. Mentorship doesn't only come from like the formal structural sense. It's seeking out role models and seeking out teachers, educators that you seem to have you be in good fit with. And you want to learn more from them, but at the same time, you feel that you're able to confide in them, your educational and non-educational struggles. And I think just connecting with potential role models that are able to help you on your life journey really help provide insight on navigating your life journey would be really good advice. 
Excellent. Yeah, the labels and the identities are such a big topic among students. What would be your advice for students who are bridging different predetermined groups? Like we often bring that in the way that we dress or the way that we look. Sometimes it's the, the things that we're interested into and we, we gravitate to a particular section of society and those societies exist on campus. What if you're trying to bridge between those different groups. What would you say to students that want to be that advocate for more enriched, diverse communities on campus rather than subset groups? Yeah, I think that, first of all, I applaud everyone who's been trying to solve social issues and like issues that they care a lot in your communities. I think for me, the big takeaway is to avoid the whole us versus them mentality and trying to challenge your own misconceptions and stereotypes about other predefined groups to, you know, interacting with other groups on campus and whether it be, you know, informal way, grabbing coffee or like true formal um, way, like, you know, coordinating events with different centers. I think those kinds of social interactions would help a lot in learning and interacting with predefined groups and at the same time would help bridge the differences. Kim, I've got to say that I'm inspired and I'm sure our listeners are inspired to know that a college undergraduate student is giving that kind of advice. And I think it's something that all of us as adults can take on board as well and thinking about examining our own prejudices, our own preconceived notions. So thank you for that. Yeah, um, you know, I think it takes a lot of self-awareness and time to reflect on these issues because, you know, there are some people, you know, to this day that are really uncomfortable talking about these sort of issues within the IB world and as like real life. And I think that for me, it's kind of like, what can I do at a local level? You know, mm -hmm. like I think big, I need to acknowledge like issues at a local level. And then it's kind of like acting local, thinking globally, mm -hmm. if that makes sense to you. That's kind of the approach that I have in my framework and identity right now. Well, Kim, I'd have to say as an ex-IB teacher that I think that the framework has done a good job in that sense of helping to prepare you for that, because that is, in essence, mm -hmm. what an IB education is for. And mm -hmm. having a global perspective can help us to see yeah. outside of ourselves and outside of the needs of our own lives. So thank mm -hmm. you for that example, too. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's good. I think Phil and I are both advocates of creating access to IB programs. Yeah, I think that education is not a necessarily a privilege you know for me i think education is a right and i think you know it takes time it takes a lot of experiences to understand that not everyone is going to go through the same you know educational experiences even if you're doing their ib for example like in my case well that's great i mean it's, it's refreshing to talk about all the things that this has made you as a person rather than talking about how much credit you got in college which is important to some people too but to take your own experiences and to feed back into that and, and enrich other people's lives. So that's very inspiring. Yeah. Well, Kim, this has been amazing. And Phil, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we've really enjoyed the conversation and we couldn't thank you more for sharing your ideas and telling us about your experiences. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Kim. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, read more great stories about IB alumni on the web at blogs.ibo.org and on Instagram at ibalumni. That's it for today. Join us next time for another edition of IB Voices.